0: Welcome to the Social World Podcast. Uh, My name is Dave Niven. Um, This is going to be a weekly podcast. Um, I'll be talking about anything and everything to do with the social world, Uh, anything that comes my way. There'll be news, there'll be items, there'll be interviews, anything that's contemporary and to be quite frank with you, anything that I think would interest you my backgrounds in social work. I was a former chair of the British Association of Social Workers and um, mostly I worked with children and families and mostly I worked involved with child protection and latterly with disabled children and their families. So I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to episode nine of the Social World podcast. Today we've got a really good program for you Firstly, I'm going to have a look at the new sentencing guidelines that have been issued by the Sentencing Council in the UK concerning sex offenders and um, new sentencing uh, rules, new thinking behind it, and hopefully a little way towards what some of us have been campaigning for for a considerable time. Then following that, I've got a wonderful interview with a young correspondent who's back in this country at the moment, but who's actually been making uh, some documentary films and working for the uh, what was the Burmese um, media outfit in exile. And she's made some films and documentaries about refugee camps. And I'll find out how that came about. And she's also interviewed Aung San Suu Kyi, which is a wonderful privilege for a very young reporter who's got uh, a fine future ahead of her. So we'll be talking to Demelza Stokes as part of this podcast as well. So from the Social World podcast today, I hope you enjoy it. Well, we've got Demelza Stokes with us today, and we're going to talk about Myanmar, Burma, and when she was a correspondent there, and she made some documentary films there, and just a few reflections on Burmese life. Welcome, to Melza. Hi,
1: thank you, David. Okay. Thanks for talking
0: to me. So, what was your first impressions of uh, Myanmar? What was your first impressions of the place of the people? Because you spent quite some time in Thailand before that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, for me, it was fascinating because I travelled to Burma right after Aung San Suu Kyi was released uh-huh. um, in November 2010, and I spent about two weeks there. And uh, my first impressions were that it was... Yeah, an amazing place, After so different to Thailand, so different to India, but mm. flanked by both countries.
0: A lot of poverty, Just, you found, didn't you? Yeah, it?
1: a lot of poverty.
0: Now, if I remember rightly, you were one of the first people to interview Aung San Suu Kyi. it wasn't too long after her release... In the headquarters in Rangoon, wasn't it? That's of, right, of yeah. Of the organisation that she belonged to. What was that organisation called?
1: It's uh, the NLD, the National League for Democracy. Okay.
0: And she, if I remember rightly, you're telling me, and two other senior officials were there yeah. from that organisation. Yeah. What, what, what was the nature of the interview then? What were the sort of things that you were asking her? Um.
1: Well, I went to the NLD office and I, because she'd just been released about a week earlier, um... Mm. I Incredible interviewed her. Experience. Yeah, it was amazing. I was there as an intern for my news agency, uh, who were based in Thailand, who sent me there to. Well, everyone was sending journalists to try and interview her because she's obviously mm. been in under house arrest for nearly two decades. So it was been a, a really mm. a, there was a real
0: buzz of excitement. Being there. And you were working for Muzima News Agency, which that's was right. essentially the Burmese News Agency in exile at that time in Thailand, because that's where they, you were based at that point, weren't you? Yeah, they?
1: that's right. Yeah, they, um, my, the two senior editors, the Bureau-in-Chief and my editor, um, they, they had been pro-democracy activists mm-hmm. in Burma mm-hmm. in the 80s and had left Burma to set up a pro-democracy newspaper outside of the country. Um, Yeah, based in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And they've since moved back into Burma due to some changes, which is, yeah, a a bit, somewhat, yeah. There are definitely (laughs) polar opposites in the argument about how it's changing, but the fact that they feel they can move in is a sign in itself, I guess.
0: So what was she like as a person?
1: She was incredible Fiercely intelligent and a sharp politician. And I think me being a naive, naive intern, she was my first ever in-person interview. With a video camera. Yeah, it, was, it set the bar pretty high for interviews. But she was uh, very, very sharp and difficult to interview. Obviously, there's so much potential for her to be misinterpreted. Yes. Or she feels that there is. So she was definitely in no... She had no qualms about putting me right. If I, in any way, asked her something, she wasn't.
0: Well, what sort of message something. did she try and give across? I mean, one week after her release, it must have been she must have been spinning almost.
1: Yeah, I, I could tell she was uh, tired <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> after being interviewed probably 24-7. But the, uh, she was spreading, I guess everyone was interested in, this is the beginning of the transition to democracy, you know, the release of the icon mm-hmm. of the pro-democracy movement out of house arrest. And she was, I mean, what she's always gunned for is transparency and accountability in the, within the Burmese government um, in all of their operations. So she was really plugging that, and that's been a, her political message for a long time, Um transparency of, you know... And she was government.
0: not after revenge or anything, was
1: she? No, and, yeah, she... <clears throat> Well, and now becoming an MP, she, mm. and especially, she's even you know had to work a lot more with the Burmese government, you know, with her, with her prison guards, I guess you could say, and she herself says that she's a daughter of the military, and the Burmese military are, you know, it was a military dictatorship, mm. uh, you know, due to her heritage and her father being General Long San, who. Helped Burma gain independence. So, yeah, she, but now she's, she's, she's towing a difficult line because she's come out of this, she's come off of the pedestal of solely fighting for human rights and, and she's had to make some tricky political decisions. Like she, uh, there was uh, lots of activist activism and public outcry about a Chinese mining company in this particular mine.
0: There's a lot of Chinese activity in the in the a country A lot of now Chinese that, investment, yeah, yeah. Mm. and
1: there has been for a while because um, obviously we've had econo- uh, the Western world has had economic sanctions against the military dictatorship and, but yeah, lots of Western investment now as well as Chinese investment. So
0: taking the West and taking China, like as a huge industrialized kind of nations, do you fear that the natural resources of of Myanmar are actually being? Um, Depleted away but not getting The benefits are not getting through to the ordinary people Does that seem to be the impression?
1: I Yeah, I do I, I, There are massive concerns About that issue of natural mm. resources And who they belong to
0: Is there any and, social welfare that you noticed in, in the country as such?
1: Um, no, it's mm. pretty much non-existent Yeah, It's a really poor country And corruption is so rife And this is where the transition to democracy will be a decades-long process. So, yeah, I mean, there's no, I think, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but of the national budget, um, you know, in 2008, probably 2.3% was spent on healthcare, you know, across the whole country. Mm.
0: But there have been some changes. I mean, I take the point about the poverty, which does sound pretty chronic. Mm. But there have been some changes because I believe that you made a couple of short documentary films to do with the Karen rebel movement, mm. um, which has now, of course, signed a peace treaty with the Burmese government. Want yeah. to say a little bit about your experience of that? What, what was it yeah. like actually going and interviewing, essentially, people that were in rebellion against the the, mm. the actual government?
1: Yeah, that was a a great experience as a as a young journalist at the time and. I was working with a great team of, of, of people. There were four of us and uh, we had a Kachin, which is another ethnic group in Burma, a Kachin cameraman who was great to work with. But yeah, it was um, really interesting to go and interview these ethnic political leaders who, who have been you know, trying to create a political alternative to the
0: Burmese uh, Government. Just curiosity. How did they take it? <clears throat> you know, a relatively young woman actually directing a, 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 a documentary. You know, it must have been quite daunting for you.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, on that, uh, on the documentary I made with the team that went out on Al Jazeera, our director. Mm. That we did have a director, but I have been to some of the ethnic armed groups' um, camps. And yeah, I I often get bypassed and people ask the main questions instead of me. But I have been learning Burmese for for two years. I did Burmese language at university. So that's always a string to my bow. When Mm. I start talking Burmese, they often think, oh, she can speak Burmese. So maybe, you know, yeah, 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 (laughs)
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, also, you've only just, you've just graduated and fin- finished doing a master's, haven't you? Don't, yeah. I mean, what was that in?
1: Uh, it was in international politics, so... Um, and is that
0: the direction you're looking at, or is the journalist kind of filmmaking, uh, that's the direction you're looking at at the moment?
1: For me, I want to combine the two. I um, So my story was, I did Southeast Asian Studies uh, for my BA degree, which I mainly concentrated on Thai and Burmese mm. language, and that's what led me out to work out in Thailand. But then, after nearly two years of working on in journalism and on the documentaries, I thought I really need a good grounding in political theory and, you know, a good critical perspective on international politics, which I definitely got at SOAS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now I hope to go on and make um, well-informed documentaries in the future, and yeah, hopefully.
0: And, and I'll just say this for our listeners you're also going to do some reporting for the Social World podcast, aren't yes, you? Yes, I
1: will do, yeah.
0: And hopefully <laughs> the first ones will be in the next month or so from Africa, yeah?
1: Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, look, Demelza, thank you ever so much for coming into the studio. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck and a good collaboration with us in the future. Thank you. Thanks, okay. David. Now, the Sentencing Council today issued new guidelines on sex offenders, and this is focusing much, much more on offender behavior and the motivation to offend, as opposed to just straight looking into the nature of the crime itself. And it's also going to be looking at grooming activity, and whether the offenses were filmed, whether people lied about their age, whether the um, actual... Use of power, the use of celebrity was important in it. And the offences include rape, child sex offences, indecent images of children, trafficking, and voyeurism amongst the 50 offences that have been targeted today by the Sentencing Council. And this will all come into effect in 2014. Now, they've said that one aim is to focus on the psychological as much as the physical effect on the victim. And so, in the case of, say, indecent images, it moves the judge away from concentrating on the number of images and really puts the emphasis on whether the offender has possessed, distributed, or created them. Now, it also looks at the psychology and the behavior of the perpetrator before the crime the use of power, the use of celebrity issues. Uh, the use of celebrity as a means of gaining power over over victims. But the previous matters really stayed at the scene of the crime and they focused, for example, on the physicality of the offence. But that was the principal determination of the seriousness of the crime. You know, which bit of the offender touched the which bit of the victim and so on. But In the aftermath of all the various scandals that have been going on recently and the very high-profile celebrity cases as well, an awful lot in the Sentencing Council's uh, advice now has changed. So we're going to have to look at what happened before the crime. We're going to have to look at motivation. We're going to have much more importance on victim impact statements. We're going to... Also consider that people in positions of responsibility, although that was taken into consideration before, you know, care workers, school teachers, social workers, police officers, whoever, anybody uh, who had a position of responsibility over vulnerable people. But this time, it's much more in the center of the, the consideration for how to sentence people who've been convicted of these crimes. I find it fascinating that it's almost like they say it's not motivated by recent high-profile cases and that this preparation has been going on for a while, but you just can't help think that uh, they've been nudged towards this quite by some of the scandals that have emerged and some of the incredible behavior of some people that have got away with this for years. So the guidelines take an expanded approach to how courts assess offenders. They're going to look at the full context of offending behavior and the motivation in committing any offense. And that means giving much more significant emphasis to important aspects like the grooming activity that we've all heard about in various high-profile cases perpetrated by gangs of men and how they target people who are vulnerable, how they groom them gradually over months sometimes, maybe even longer, and then eventually how they actually use these young, vulnerable people for their own ends. And that will all be much more part of the assessment of sentencing. Now, another good thing that's happened is previously, the minimum um, uh, term for somebody convicted of multiple rape was 15 years. Now, that sentence, that minimum sentence, will apply to anybody convicted of just one particular rape. And so sentences of 20 years and above are now recommended for campaigns of rape. And the worst cases of assault that nearly uh, amount to rape are also going to be considered as rape. And that is a very good move forward. So effectively... Due to the seemingly the growth in offending online, they've also had to look at guidelines such as sexual activity with a child, offending committed remotely, maybe via webcam, when the child has been asked to do to to do various things that the perpetrator wants them to do, and they film them. That will become an important part of sentencing as well, and an additional mark against the perpetrator, as well as if the perpetrator lies about their age via social media or sharing indecent photographs. So in a lot of ways, we've got quite a bit of movement here that people have been campaigning for for a long time. There was public consultation on this, and various groups like victims, judges, magistrates, lawyers, police NGOs, government and academics and medics and social workers were all consulted. And it adds various different aggravating factors to the list of offences that can now be um, punished. For example, various new aggravating factors are exploitation offences, threats of exposure. So in other words, the blackmail side of it as well is now covered. And this is used as a, which which was used as a further means, of course, of controlling victims. You know, you just say, well, we're going to let these pictures go everywhere. We're going to tell your parents. We're going to tell your family. We're going to spread it all around your friends by social media, by networking. And so it terrifies lots and lots of young people into not being able to come forward or being paralysed in their ability to do anything about it. And so ultimately, in some cases, it led to some fairly dramatic events, including self-harm, and in some cases, even suicide. And that serious part of things is now being given far more weight in sentencing if that turns out to be part of the whole process. Now, victims always seemed to get Less of a shout in these matters than they deserved, and so the actual victim profiling, the uh, the way that they are able to understand and talk about what happened to them, the way that they're act- the impact statements, if you like, on victims, are going to be given far more weight in this matter as well. So ultimately, these proposals are going to apply to a lot of uh, professional workers who've got responsibility with children as well. It's also going to um, increase the awareness of judges, and I suspect there's going to be more training available there. We're not going to be going down the road again of being allowing such spurious arguments in court as these children brought this amongst themselves, because effectively that was never Going to That was never going to run in the first place anyway. And as I said, the, st- the starting point, the thresholds for rape sentences are now being raised to 15, 15 years. So, yes, we've got the aftermath of Jimmy Savile, Rochdale grooming cases, Oxford grooming cases, and although the sentencing council said that prior to them coming to the public attention, they had been mooting this kind of change in the first place anyway, I think obviously that has influenced them. And Lord Justice Treacy, the council's chairman, he said that the guidelines would, quote, make real changes to the way offenders are sentenced for these very serious, sensitive, and complex offences. And he went on to say that this approach will enable sentences that reflect what the victim has been through And take in a full profile of what the offender has done, such as grooming or abusing trust. And no one wants more people falling victim to offenders who come before the courts. And public protection is central to this guideline. Whether it's jailing offenders or, where appropriate, imposing rigorous treatment orders and other restrictions on their offences. So, watch this space. I'll be keeping an eye on it. I'll let you know what's happening. Let's see where it goes. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. And if you're new to the podcast, uh, well, thanks for tuning in. Let me have your feedback. Please do, because it's lovely to hear your thoughts and and ideas for further podcasts. So that's the socialworldpodcast.com or you can tweet us at Dave Niven Please have a look at our website because we're now developing some media training, which is really exciting. And some of the people that we've been doing it with this week, I'm going to tell you about in weeks to come. Excellent stuff and very, very rewarding to actually see some people trained up and actually being able now to use the media much more efficiently. So get in touch with us. We're going to be putting these on over the next month or two. And um, well, we'd just love to have you as guests. So Thanks for listening. All the best. See you next time.